for tonight. So if you have all those things, why don't you pray for us, and we will get started. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you uh, for Jesus. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the preaching of your word. Thank you for the activity of your Holy Spirit. Uh, I pray uh, for our weather. Um, Lord, I know you know what you're doing, but we do pray and ask you for cooler temperatures and a wonderful season of rain. Uh, whatever you want to do, uh, that's good with us, but that's, you've said we, we can ask you, and so we do. We ask. I pray your spirit would be here tonight. Uh, lead us and guide us into all truth. Your word is truth, and I pray that your spirit would help us each to apply this to our own lives tonight. We thank you and pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Two chapters. Don't get spoiled. Next week, you only have one chapter. You might want to start reading ahead. It won't always stay at one or two chapters. We'll, we'll pick it up again. But next, uh, next week, one of the kind of pivotal chapters in the whole Old Testament, okay? So we haven't talked about this in a little while. Um, in Genesis, what's the first big pivotal chapter? Okay, chapter 3, that's bad news. <laughs> bad news happened in chapter 3. Next big pivotal chapter, 12, why 12? Because the Abrahamic covenant, which is the backbone of the whole entire Old Testament, as well as New Testament, backbone of the whole Bible, but particularly the Old Testament is where we see it. Chapter 12, 15 and 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he goes back over it three times. In chapter, he goes over it in chapter 12, chapter 15, chapter 17. Okay, It promises three things. Land, seed, and blessing. Seed or people. Land, seed, and blessing. There's three characteristics of the Abrahamic covenant. It is unilateral, unconditional, and unending. Someone gets an A. Someone gets an A. I heard the answers. So the Abrahamic covenant, the first thing we looked at at the end of Deuteronomy was the Palestinian covenant, which came in and amplified the land promise. The seed promise, land, seed, is 2 Samuel 7. And so next week, we will get the second of three parts for the Abrahamic covenant. The last one is in Jeremiah 31 that talks about the blessing. So we got land, seed, and blessing announced and given by covenant to Abraham. And then there are three more times God makes smaller, if you will, covenants that fit right up under land, seed, and blessing. The Mosaic covenant has come into being back in the book of Somebody's up here saying, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. 
book of Exodus, because the next big pivotal chapter after Genesis chapter 17 is Genesis chapter 12. Good. That was a trick question. Because the next pivotal chapter is Exodus 12, which is the Passover. Next big chapter after that is Exodus chapter 40. Yeah, you could say 20 because that's when the law is given. I can go for 20. And then 40 where God comes to dwell with his people. So off of Exodus 20, we've had the Mosaic law. Why did God give the Mosaic law? Because if I were an Israelite, I wanted to know if I obeyed, what was the blessing I would get? And so he tells them in the Mosaic Covenant, if you do this, then I'll do this. But the rest of the covenants, the rest of the Abrahamic covenants are all one way. God says, I will do these things. And so the Mosaic Covenant will come along and be the conditional covenant that God uses with his people. So next week, 2 Samuel 7, just a little primer to remind you, but 2 Samuel 7, huge chapter in the Old Testament. So read it a couple of times. You'll enjoy it. We're still in 2 Samuel 5 and 6. So let's do that tonight. We've got, uh, what do we have? We have, there we go. We're talking about the monarchy still. And 2 Samuel with the deaths of Saul and Ishbosheth, God brings Saul's dynasty or his house to an end. Sin and civil war have kept God's presence, power, and blessing in the outskirts of national life. If you got a chance to read chapters 5 and 6, where is the ark right now? Kiriath Jerim, which is where it got left a long time ago. It's about 10 miles away from Jerusalem. And it's been living <laughs> in somebody else's house. David knows he has to unify and strengthen the kingdom. They're, they're just coming out of basically a civil war. And so he, first he works to bring God's presence back to the center of the nation's heart. And so tonight's lesson, chapters 5 and 6, returning God to his rightful place which is the center of his nation's geography and heart. So that's what chapters 5 and 6 really all boil down to. Uh, David gets anointed in chapter 5. Uh, now people, at least in these first few verses, they seem to really be remembering or, be, or be, they've been reminded who David is and what David has done. And so they anoint him king of Israel, his third anointing. He got anointed by Samuel. That was God saying, you're going to be my king. And then Judah basically anointed him. And now all Israel is anointing him. So he, the beginning of the unification of Israel, not seen since Joshua, is beginning to happen. So there at Hebron, 
King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in all. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven and a half years, and from Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. So what does David need? A capital. So here he goes. He's going to pick something central. It's something on the border between Judah and Israel. So uh, politically, it's a good place to locate a capital. And so he leads his men to fight against the Jebusites, the original inhabitants of the land. They taunted David, saying, you'll never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. Now, some people, maybe, this could be a saying, because it shows up as a saying in just a few verses. Uh, some people even think that they got blind and lame people and put them on the wall of the fortress, saying, even these people can keep you out, because this is such a strong fortress. Don't know. Maybe they did that, maybe they didn't, but it at least became a saying that the blind and the lame may not enter the house. So, the Jebusites thought they were safe, but David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now called the city of David. On the day of the attack, David said to his troops, I hate those lame and blind Jebusites. Whoever attacks them should strike by going into the city through the water tunnel. In 1 Chronicles, David says, whoever figures out how to get in there, I'm going to make him commander over the, over the army. And so maybe David didn't see the way in, but somebody did. And uh, so that's how they go in, is they go in through the water tunnel. They capture the city. So David made the fortress his home, and he called it the city of David. He extended the city, starting at the sporting terraces and working inward. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven's armies was with him. Confirmation, King Hiram of Tyre sends messengers along with some stuff, and they build David a palace. And David realized that the Lord had confirmed him as king over Israel and blessed his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Uh, then David decides to marry some more women, which seems to be allowed, but did not work out well for him. Uh, just saying, and that might not have been such a good idea, but that's what he did. Uh, when the Philistines heard, verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king of Israel, they mobilized all their forces to capture him. What are they thinking? Wait a minute, this guy used to just live with us, right? He, he lived over here, and now he's over there, and we'll just go get him. So David's told that they're coming. The Philistines spread out. David asks the Lord, should I go out to fight? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord replied to David, yes, go ahead. I will certainly hand them over to you. And so he goes and he fights them the first time. 
and the Lord had given him a strategy to do that. After a while, verse 22, the Philistines return. They spread out in the same place again. And the Lord, uh, David asked the Lord again, should I go attack him again? He says, yes, but use a different strategy this time. Come around behind and capture them um, that way. And so he does that. So David did what the Lord commanded, verse 25, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, and he leads them to Baal of Judah to bring back the Ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. Okay, so other crazy stuff happens here. They placed the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from... What? They did what? Okay, this was not good. This was not right. A lot of people say, so I guess David got away with this? Is it because he's David? I mean, the Levites were supposed to carry this on poles on their shoulders. They're not supposed to put it on a cart. How does David seem to get away with putting it on the cart? I don't know. (laughs) But perhaps David doesn't know what is supposed to be done. Perhaps the teaching has been so poor for several hundred years that David doesn't know what is to be done. I think that's plausible. Why else? I don't know. I'm ready for your paper. Go ahead and write it. I would love to read your ideas on why David, nothing happens to David. I think it's because he's, in a sense, he's ignorant of what is supposed to happen. Anyway, they get the ark on the cart. They're walking along. David and all the people of Israel are celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacom, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah reached out his hand just to steady the ark of God. (laughs) Uzzah gets it. Uzzah is dead. God strikes him dead because of this. And you go, well, why would Uzzah get it, but David wouldn't? Again, maybe it's the privilege of the position. Don't know. I think it's just because Uzzah crossed the line. However they got the thing onto the ark (laughs) must have been different than Uzzah reaching out and keeping the ark from falling off the cart. Anyway, God is holy, and you don't mess with his holiness. And that's what Uzzah did, even though it seems to be accidental or inadvertent. So David's angry that the Lord had burst out against Uzzah. And he names that place Perez Uzzah, which means to burst out against Uzzah, as it is still called today. Now, the good thing that happened out of this, verse 9, David was now afraid of the Lord. And he, now, he's not, yay, 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 right? There's this reverential awe. David might have been playing a little too fast and loose with this thing. And this happens, gets his attention, and now there is the reverential awe. This is God's throne. And I better treat it accordingly. So, 
how can I ever bring the ark of the Lord back into my care? So David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained there in Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Okay, possibly what might they be doing in this three months, or why did it take three months? Maybe because they had to go find some copies of the scrolls and read what they should have been doing in the first place, and then they get it figured out. Then King David was told, the Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's house and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David goes there and brings the ark in uh, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with great celebration. After the men, you say, well, Bill, this is a lot of conjecture. Come on, verse 13. After the men who were carrying, which is what they were supposed to do, Carrying the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. David sacrificed a bull and fattened calf. Okay, why is David sacrificing things? I don't know. Other kings did the same thing. So it's possible that in the, this um, uh, different, um, the, if he's in the line of Melchizedek, okay, which we hit in Hebrews, if he's in the line of Melchizedek, then maybe they fall under a different way of doing this. So it could absolutely have been legitimate. Hezekiah does it and gets zapped with leprosy. So other kings did sacrifice, but they're not priests, and some seemed successful in it and others didn't. So evidently God, of course, as he always does, looks on the heart and makes a determination. Anyway, King David is uh, doing sacrifices. Uh, let's see. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, wearing a priestly garment. Yeah, I'm waiting for your paper. Go ahead and go ahead and write it up. The only thing that makes sense to me is he is somehow in the order of Melchizedek in this thing. And therefore, because who, who are the priests? They're Levites. David is not a Levite he, uh, uh, from Levi. He's from Judah. So he doesn't have the um, family history to be a priest. And yet he is. And so he is an amazing picture of our Lord Jesus in all these things that he's doing. And so David is dancing and all these things. So David and all the people of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts of joy and the blowing of ram's horns. Well, what a downer this is. But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, remember the one he said, I won't make a deal with you unless I get Michael back? Hmm. She looks down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. Uh, this is really not a good thing. They brought the ark of the Lord. They set it in its place in the, inside the special... Inside... Wow! <laughs> 
That was what? <laughs> yeah. I thought it was for my prayer. <laughs> Set it in place inside the special tent David had prepared for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. When he had finished his sacrifices, David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies. Uh, then he gave to every Israel. Now, it's also possible that there is no priest available to serve in this capacity. Remember? Because if this is really going to be a celebration, there would have had to been some purification and there would have had to been some this and that and the other thing. It's possible there was no priest who was uh, qualified at this particular time to do these things. And so David took that on himself, which I also like that explanation. Okay, uh, so David blesses the people because that was the role of the high priest. Remember at the end, the high priest comes out and he says the blessing over the people as the ceremonies concluded. Uh, then he gave to every Israelite man and woman in the crowd a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people returned to their homes. All right. Ready? This, this moved PG pretty quickly. You just didn't see it. <laughs> what does David give them? <laughs> he gives them gifts of fertility. And so they head back to their homes. Where does David go? Home. Don't miss what's going on here. David has now blessed everybody and said, be fruitful and multiply. They all go to their homes. <laughs> Woo! I got some bread, I got some dates, I got some raisins. Put in a good movie, we're good. They all go home. David goes home. When David returned home to bless his own family, <laughs> Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. She said in disgust, how distinguished the king of Israel looked today, shamelessly exposing himself to the servant girls like any vulgar person might do. David retorted to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. Uh, by the way, if you're married, this is probably not a great thing to be telling to your wife. I was dancing before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his family. He appointed me as the leader of Israel, the people of the Lord. So I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. But those servant girls you mentioned will indeed think I am distinguished. So Michael, the daughter of Saul, remained childless throughout her entire life. And you're going, that is so weird. Why would, why would somebody put that in there? Well, they put it in there because of this David has blessed them and now he wants them to go be fruitful and multiply. We're getting, we're, we're getting the nation back together and we're going to start repopulating it. And here's a gift from the king to everyone. Yay! But the king goes home and nothing. 
And basically, Michael dies childless because David, of course, does not go into her. Chapters 5 and 6. This is such good stuff. Isn't this good? Oh, so good. Agreed. What is David doing? He's returning God to his rightful place, the center of his nation's heart. David establishes a new capital. He can't use the old capital. He can't use the other people's capital. He's got to pick something new. So God has a new first place, a new first place in the kingdom. And so here it is. Uh, Remember when David captures it, um, there are people who say they know, and they probably know better than I do. This is probably what he captured. Here's the temple up here. This isn't built yet, right? It's not built till Solomon. So this part probably doesn't really exist. Is it walled in? I don't know. Maybe. He built the terraces, or he worked from the terraces inward when he was building. Did they build this in anticipation of this? Because if this is really where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, then possibly, maybe David knew that, or maybe somebody knew that, and they passed it on to him. And so they may have said, oh, we've got to put walls around this because we're going to build a temple there. That could make sense. But they capture this, and here's the springs. They had um, fortified the springs, and Laurie is with us in spirit. If you look at the bottom of chapter, uh, page 3, this is a cutaway view of what they would have found. So if they could get past the first fortification on the right-hand side, they could go through the tunnel, the Gihon Spring, go through that where it says feeder tunnel. Then they would have climbed up that shaft, kept going, kept going, kept going, and it would have taken them inside. They would have Dun, 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 dun. It would have brought them right in here, if you can, if you can see that through me. Right there. It would have brought them inside the city. Perhaps they opened the gates. There had to be gates. They probably opened the gates, whoever went in, and then the Israelites were able to flood in. So David establishes a new capital. These Jebusites had been there since Joshua's day. They had never been rooted out. So David goes in and roots them out and establishes a new capital. David drives out an old enemy, the Philistines. No Philistine is going to be tolerated within David's borders. And so the Philistines begin to attack him. What does he do? Lord, should I take care of them? Yes, take care of them. And he pushes them out of the country. They come back. He asks the Lord again, yes, but do it a different way. And he pushes them out again, and they don't seem to trouble them too much for a while. So he establishes a new capital. 
God has a new first place in the kingdom. He drives out an old enemy. No Philistine will be tolerated within the borders. They have these two battles right around the valley of Rephaim and move them back into the green there on the left to uh, Gezer, Gath, Gaza, those, the Philistine, more of the Philistine cities. So he drives out an old enemy and he brings back the ark. Now, it had been out of sight, some people would say, up to 60 years. You say, what? Okay, how long did Saul reign? 40 years. When did the ark get parked? Remember when it came back, Samuel is still alive. When the ark got parked. David's been ruling for seven and a half years already. So this could be as much as 60 years the ark has been somewhere else. And so David is excited to get it because of what it represents. It's God's throne, and he wants God's throne right in the, in the capital city of Israel. The ark of God's presence is once again at the center of his people's hearts, and lives. Here's a, another thing. Uh, the amazing Laurie found this too uh, that shows the travels of the ark and uh, David finally bringing it from Kiriath Jerim to Jerusalem, which is about 10 miles. So from here to what's 10 miles away? Arlington? would probably seem longer if you were carrying it. <laughs> so David brings back the ark and puts it in the new first place that he's established for the country. So returning God to his rightful place, how does this apply to us? Returning God to his rightful place in the center of his child's heart which is you and me. And you say, what are you talking about? Um, here's one. Uh, again, um, this may not apply to you. This probably only applies to me. Um, the past month seems like it's been very, very busy. Uh, so I get up at my normal time which there's plenty of time for me to have a good, quiet time. And lately, because my quiet time stuff is on my computer, what do you think happens when I get up, turn on my computer, what's the first thing staring at me? Email. Well, I better answer these two or three and just because if I don't get the answer out, then somebody's waiting. So I'll just answer these two or three. Well, by the time I get to that, get finished with that, that's about 20 minutes, maybe a little more. Yeah, I'm slow. So I get to that. Well, then what happens? Oh, gosh, I just remembered something. And then I got to go take care of that. The time I have set aside to be with God gets eaten up. 
and I wind up squeezing instead of uh, my one hour that I've kind of blocked out for that gets whittled down to 15 or 20 minutes. And God, in a sense, gets pushed to Kiriath Jerim. <laughs> he gets pushed outside the capital city over here in the outskirts. God, I've got to take care of this stuff first, and then I'll, then I'll get to you. That's what happens in my life. I don't know if that happens in your life, but that's what happens to me. And the longer that goes on, um, the more not good it is. I often need to return God to his rightful place, which is the center of my heart. He needs to occupy first place and have first priority. So returning God to his rightful place. Question, is God where he should be? By that I mean in your life. Sin and civil war can do a number on us too, just like it did on Israel. When we are at war with ourselves, like we talked about last week, um, it's at least distracting. Times of disobedience or indifference can also cause us to allow God to move to the outskirts instead of at the center. So can adverse circumstances. During such times, we can grow half-hearted and or double-minded toward God. We can push Him, His Word, His will, and His presence into the outskirts of our lives. He warns us, the Lord warns us in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, we can even lose our first love. It doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. It just means we've got him so far out of where he should be that we've lost our first love. Maybe you think about it this way. Uh, if if your heart were a table, like a big Thanksgiving table, what seat does the Lord have? It really, what seat does it, you don't have to raise your hand, you don't have to talk, <laughs> just ask yourself, what seat does the Lord have at my table? Is he in the seat of honor? Or is he just lucky to get a seat somewhere at the table? Or is he sitting at the adult table at all? Or is he out in the backyard at one of the kiddie tables with the children? So he won't be underfoot. Is he at the center of your life? Or do you just keep him in the periphery? I don't know about you. I get into this from time to time. And the Lord 
of lords and king of kings is sitting at the kitty table in my heart. He's not even in the main room, in the main table. Returning God to his rightful place. More questions. Are there some Jebusites or Philistines hunkered down in your heart tonight? Like some ongoing unrepentant sin. A lack of security or significance. Busyness or materialism. A lack of forgiveness, anger or bitterness or resentment. How about discouragement or complacency? Maybe even fear over something. Are there some Jebusites or Philistines hunkered down right now in your heart? Remember where the Jebusites were. They were in the capital city. How do I go about, go about bringing back God's presence to the center of my heart? Returning God to his rightful place. I say bring back in the sense God has not left. This is our feeling, our expression of what's happening. So bringing back God's presence. First question is, well, what pushes him to the outskirts? Well, first is I can grieve the Spirit. Ephesians 4.30. Those are the things that I do that I should not do. If I grieve the Spirit, I'm, in a sense, pushing him to the outskirts. I can quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. So that's what I don't do that I should do. So one hits the part that I do, the other hits the part that I don't do. So I can grieve the Spirit by doing things I'm not supposed to do. I can quench the Spirit by not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I can also just disobey Him or even just ignore Him. And in those times when my quiet time drops down to a 15-minute thing, quick Bible passage, few quick prayers, yeah, good, here we go, God. Even in those times, I don't mean to ignore God, but I'm sure not giving him the best. I'm giving him what I've got left over because I've got to hold a schedule. I've got to keep moving. And here's, where, here's the time I have allotted, but I used up all this, other, all this other time on lesser priorities that distracted me from my greatest priority which is to spend time with the Lord. So I can disobey him or even just inadvertently ignore him. What brings him back? You know this. Confession and repentance. Restore broken fellowship. Now, when you're tempted to think confession means, okay, I blew it again, I'll try harder tomorrow. 
What have we learned from Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8? That does not work. <laughs> you are not going to try harder. What are you going to do? You're going to say, Lord, work in me. <laughs> you have to change what I want. You have to change what I do. I am incapable of even doing those things. I will get it wrong. It's not, I know I shouldn't have done that yesterday, but I'll try harder tomorrow. It's, Lord, unfortunately, I listened to the voice on the other side of the wall instead of to you. I repent of listening to that voice because that is a lie. Help me to hear you because you are truth. And by your spirit, would you draw me in your direction? I have no ability to make a move toward you. Would you draw me in your direction? And ask the Lord to do what only he can do. A reminder for communion. When you take communion and you think, Oh, Lord, I'm sorry for these things. And I don't doubt that, you know, you are or I am. Help me to live better tomorrow or next week or whatever. You, you're dropping into the same old wagon wheel ruts. You've got to get out of those. It's not about us living better, trying harder, doing more, whatever. That doesn't work. Keep going back to Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. It's about Jesus being on the other side of the wall. I mean, the, the evil one being on the other side of the wall and listening to him instead of to Jesus, who's calling us his way. How do I know what Jesus wants me to do? It's right here. It's right here. You could ask yourself the questions, who am I listening to? Is it something that's going to promote life or death? Is it something that's going to um, encourage obedience or disobedience? Is it something that's going to increase or enhance servanthood or self-centeredness? You can ask yourselves some questions. What am I thinking right now? What am I wanting right now? And you can probably trace it to who you're listening to more. And so you say, well, how, how, do, I know, how do I know this? How do I know what Jesus is asking me to do? You don't, unless you're in here. But be encouraged. Paul reminds us that we have the mind of Christ. If you are in Christ, you have the mind of Christ. The mind of, this is the mind of Christ. You want to know what he thinks? It's right here. You want to know about his attitude? It's right in here. You want to know what he wants you to do? It's right in here. We have to get to know him by getting to know his word. So when people say, how do I know what God wants me to do? How long are you spending in your Bible? If I'm cutting back on my Bible time and prayer time because I've got emails to answer, I'm not hearing him. 
I'm not listening to him very long with how much I'm li- this one keeps coming over the wall at me all during the day without ceasing, relentless. 15 minutes is going to be a challenge <laughs> to battle this. I hope that makes sense to you. What pushes him out? What's going to bring him back? Confession and repentance restore broken fellowship. The other thing that draws him close to you and you close to him is obedience prompted by love. He tells us in John 14, 21. Those things will bring him, he's, remember, he's not gone anywhere, but will bring him back to the center of your heart. Give God first place in your heart. Jesus has overthrown those Jebusites and broken their once powerful grip. The greater David has already made your heart his home. He's captured and converted their former stronghold, stronghold of defiance, into his royal throne. Your heart is Christ's home. Reaffirm that Jesus has the capital, the throne, the first place in your heart and in your life tonight. Reaffirm that. Give God the first place in your heart. Second, fight the enemy. We talked about this last week. The Philistines had settled in and settled down. No enemy can be tolerated within our borders, within the border of man's soul. We have to come against the enemy in God's power. And chapter uh, 5 reminds us that God's will isn't a formula. Fresh strategies and power are required for every battle. The key is dependence on God. Talk to Him. Follow Scripture's instructions. And then at the end, give God the glory. He illustrated twice. God gave him two different strategies to fight the same enemy. What did David do first? He asked. He asked. Lord, what do you, will you go with me? Guaranteed, he's going to go with you. He wants you to fight. He wants to empower you. He wants you to be victorious. But you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it apart from him. So you've got to ask him, Lord, how do you want to attack this today? Ask him. See if he doesn't whisper something to your spirit. He says, this is how I want you to go about doing this today. Okay. Talk to him. Follow the scripture's instructions. Give God the glory. In Hebrew, the word for glory um, is uh, kavod, which, which is weight. Weight. Give God his, the weight <laughs> that he is due. He's so weighty. 
we should be glorifying him because he's so magnificent. He's so unbelievable. Give him the glory when he brings victory, even if it's a victory for one minute or one hour or one day or whatever the thing is. Give him the glory. You didn't do it. If he chose to work in and through you and fight the Philistines, fight the Jebusites, he did it. So give him the glory. Fight the enemy. How do we return God to his rightful place? Decide to acknowledge God's first place in your heart and give it to him again if necessary tonight. Fight the enemy in the power of the Holy Spirit, particularly eliminating complacency. Bring back his presence to the center of your heart and life through confession, repentance, love-prompted obedience to his word, and heartfelt worship. There are so many things we should worship him for every single day. If you're leaving worship for one hour on Sunday, I would suggest one of the first things you ought to start working on this next month is how can you worship him every day? How can you get to the place that if you do a morning quiet time, I'm a morning person. It's nine o'clock, my head's on the pillow and I'm going to sleep. I'm not an evening person. So I have my quiet time in the morning. How can I get to the place every morning where I worship God? Just me. Lord, I worship you this morning for fill in the blank. How long would you have to read? How long would you have to pray? How long would you have to spend with him and say, Lord, I really heartfelt worship you this morning. And I'd suggest one way you can worship him is thank him for all the things he's given you. But if you have children, however old they are, would you have been happy if all they ever did was thank you for what you gave them instead of who you are? How can you worship God for who he is? He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Read the Psalms. You get all kinds of attributes of God. Worship him for being who he is every morning to be able to say, who are you? Who are you who is like this to me? Who are you? You are amazing. And that you would send your son and he would seek me out and he would draw me to himself and he has committed himself to make me like him? <sighs> Big task, Lord. <laughs> Big task to make me like Jesus. And he goes, got it. Name that tune, Bill. I specialize in that. Ready to go? Yes. <laughs> he is amazing. And there are many, many things I would encourage you to worship him for. Every morning or evening, if you do your quiet time in the evening, 
get to the place where you are worshiping him. And the more you worship him, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his, his glory and grace. The more you get to know him and see him as he is, the less attractive the guy on the other side of the wall becomes. Because what you are made for is where we're going, not where we were. We were not made for this. We are made to live with him. Can you imagine all eternity is not sufficient to know God? All eternity is not sufficient to know God. That'll blow your mind. <laughs> and it should. That should be blowing our minds all the time. Heartfelt worship. For next week, read 2 Samuel 7. Read it a couple of times. It's only one chapter. It's a good one. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for yourself. Um, my goodness, uh, w even if we knew your word better and better and better, that would simply be scratching the surface of who you are. Uh, you amaze us. You make us awestruck. Uh, we are so thankful, not only for what you give us, but for who you are and how you treat us. And you do that day in and day out. You are committed to us, loyal to us, working on our behalf all the time, relentlessly, with all of your energy working in us to make us like your perfect, matchless Son, our Lord and King, Jesus. We love you. You amaze us. Help us to never lose that amazement until we see you face to face. We love you and we worship you this evening. And thank you for our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. See you in a week.